0: We are continuing our look in the book of Galatians, one of Paul's uh, most profound letters in terms of him making clear what was real and what wasn't, and you better make sure you're where you need to be. And today we're going to take a look at this incredible letter at a moment that speaks of confirmation. Now, we as Baptists do not practice the the act of either uh, the the baptism of babies and later confirmation. And so that word may seem strange to us. What are you doing talking about that in a Baptist church? Well, hold on and you'll find out. Because I'm not talking about that kind of confirmation. Uh, Chuck Swindoll uh, shared a story about a gentleman who was seeking confirmation from God at a moment in time that he really, really needed to know if he had heard the Lord correctly. The man was a leader in the Navigators. A very, if you've never heard of the Navigators, you need to look them up. They do incredible discipleship materials. And he believed that he and his wife were being led by God himself to go and begin a ministry with the Navigators in Uganda. Now, if you know anything about the history of Uganda, you know that it was uh, through its history at times very tumultuous. But they had prayed and they sought the Lord. They talked with the leaders of navigators and everyone was agreed now was the right time. So he uprooted their family, uh, took a flight to Kenya where he left his wife and children while he went in to scope out the land in Uganda. He uh, got into a Land Rover, traveled across the border, and they began looking. And this is what the man shared with Swindall. Swindoll. One of the first things that caught my eye when I came into the village where I was going to spend my first night were several young kids. That's not unusual. Several young kids with automatic weapons. Shooting them off into the sky. It says, as I drove by, they stared at me and pointed their guns. If you were in his shoes, as if I were, I know that's a moment at time you're saying, God, maybe you meant Kenda Kenya. He 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 was very very nervous. Finally, at the end of his day, he looked around the village. He came to a hotel which uh, was very dingy. It was dimly lit. He walked in, and the man behind the desk said there was one bed left. So he went up into the room. He walked into the room. Uh, after climbing two flights of stairs, opened the door, turned on the light, and the light was a bulb hanging from a wire. And he noticed there were two beds, one nicely made up and the other unmade. And he realized, I'm not going to be alone in this room. And again, he's beginning to have some quakes, and so he does what he knows to do. He needed the encouragement of God, so he got down on his knees, and he began praying fervently, asking God, I'm afraid I'm in a country I don't know, in a culture that's totally unfamiliar. I have no idea who's sleeping in this room with me. Please, Lord, let me know that you are in this move, that we are doing what you want us to do. He was seeking confirmation from God. Have I made the right choice for myself and my family? And just as he got through praying, the door opened. And he looked, and then staring in the doorway was a six-foot-five-inch African gentleman frowning at him. And he spoke in beautiful English, what are you doing in my room? I knelt there for a moment, and then I muttered, "Uh, they gave me... This bed, but I'm only here for one night. What are you doing in my country? Well, I'm with a Christian organization that's known as the Navigators. And all of a sudden, the man says, the Navigators! He ran into the room, put a bear hug on the guy, lifted him up off the ground and started dancing around the room. And he said, praise God! Praise God. I have been praying for two years that God would send someone to me from this organization. And he pulled out, and some of you have seen their packs, a scripture memory verse pack. He pointed at the very bottom of the card where it said, the navigators, Colorado Springs, Colorado. And he said, are you from Colorado Springs, Colorado? And he said, I was. But I'm coming to Uganda to begin a work for the Navigators in this country. That Ugandan eventually became a board member of the new Navigators ministry that took off amazingly. He helped the American leader find a place to live, assisted him with the language, and became the Navigators staff member's best friend. Here's a man in a moment of fear, with everything uncertain, Wanting God to confirm I've done the right thing. Now we're coming to a text in today's text, in in today's passage, Galatians 1, 18 through 24, that is about confirmation, but it's a different kind of confirmation. Paul wasn't seeking confirmation from the Lord. Am I doing the ministry you've called me to? He's had plenty of confirmation about that. What he's doing, he's looking at a community of faith, the Galatians, who have been in battle. They have had false teachers coming and seem to be persuading them that what Paul told you, you don't need to trust. You listen to us. So Paul was seeking to give them not his own personal confirmation. God proved to me I was his own. He wants them to know that the churches of Judea if anyone had ever had a reason to reject Paul, it was those churches. And yet they confirmed, this man is real. He is from God. So we're going to take a look at our text. And uh, it's, a, it's a powerful text. It continues Paul's, by his autobiography will continue into chapter 2 as well. But I ask you to stand as we look at the Word of God together and listen with both ears and your heart. To what Paul had to say. He wrote, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stay with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Paul's coming back on testimony time in court. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia, I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now you and I are not following in Paul's Pathway. We're not in the same circumstance. We are not finding ourselves fighting for the very life of the gospel in a sister church. Um, so it's not the exact situation, but what we do find in Paul are some principles that can help us understand something. Today, we really need to, we really need to be certain that we are becoming the people God wants us to be. We need God to confirm in our lives through what he shows us in his word, what it means to be a faithful follower of Christ. You see, my fear is that in the West, over the last 40 years, the idea of what it means to be faithful to Christ has come down to one thing. I go to church. And folks, those of you who know me well and those who've just met me, I hope you will hear my heart. I want you to be in church, but that's not the only thing that identifies us. There's so much more, and we need to be sure because this one thing we do have in common, there are a lot of people out in the world today saying, thus saith the Lord. They're very far removed from what the Scripture says, and they're claiming things in the name of Jesus. We need to be certain. We need to be able to have a confirmation from God's own word, principles that will help us understand. What does it mean to be faithful? So we're going to take a look at those, looking at Paul's testimony and what happened to him, and then relating the principle behind it to our lives. And we'll begin with this. The faithful know the wisdom of connection. People who are faithfully serving God know it's important to be part of what God is doing. And that was very clear with Paul. When he get when what we looked at last week he got saved and instead of going to Jerusalem to confer with the 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 apostles and to learn from them the gospel he went into Arabia. And then we're told 3 years later, Now that means probably 3 years after his conversion and keep in mind Paul was a Jewish gentleman in the 1st century and so it could mean he was in Arabia 2 years and three months, because they had the tendency to round things up. But for three years, he's been with Jesus. And then he says, finally, Paul eventually went to Jerusalem to become acquainted with other leaders. After three years, I finally made my way to Jerusalem, and he said, first, to get acquainted with Cephas. Now, many of you will know, that's the Aramaic name for the one we call Peter. And it is, they both mean basically the same thing, rock. For Paul, he regularly refers to Peter as Cephas. Frequently, perhaps, because he's having to deal with the Judaizers who are trying to undo what he's doing. So he refers to the name Cephas that the folks of Judea would know him by. And he came to meet them. Now, this isn't a contradiction. He didn't say, I didn't meet and I didn't go to the apostles in Jerusalem. Now he is. It's absolutely certain. Paul said, I got the gospel from Jesus Christ. He is not going to the, to Jerusalem to sit under a Peter so he can learn what the gospel is. He's not going to Jerusalem to see Cephas so he can get, uh, a crash course in what it's going to mean to be a missionary. He's not going for discipleship training. He's going to meet him to become acquainted with. Now, most of us will get what that means, don't we? I want to get to know you. I want to know something about you. And it was wise for him to do so. And he's come and we're told he stayed two weeks with Peter. Now, that's one of those moments in the Bible, you just kind of wish you could have been a fly on the wall. Wouldn't it have been amazing to listen to what these two men had to say to each other? And while Paul in Corinthians says, I, I don't want to know about Jesus, anything after the flesh, he's not saying I didn't want to know about the life of Jesus. He's saying I don't want to approach this from a worldly standard. I want to know the truth as God has revealed it. And so it's most likely Paul did learn some things from Peter. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes a statement that after Jesus rose, he came and visited Cephas personally. Can't you imagine that Cephas told him that story? And then he tells a little bit later in 15 that later Jesus appeared to 500 brothers up in Galilee. And, a, and showed himself, again, Cephas is probably the one who gave him the information. Scholarship is long understood that Peter was Mark's source of most of his information about the life of, and they spoke, and they talked, and they became acquainted. And then he says, I didn't see any of the other apostles. except James, the brother of our Lord, the brother of Jesus. Now, the word of God, again, lets us know that Christ appeared to his brother, his family. And at that time, James became a follower of Christ. And later in the book of Galatians, Paul identifies Cephas, this gentleman uh, that is known as James, and then the Apostle John as being pillars of the church. He came to get them known. know them. Why? Because there was a principle that you can follow in Paul's life, his entire ministry. Paul is all about seeing people saved, but he's also all about seeing people grounded and brought together. So Paul was seeking connections with a brother in Christ. And it's important that we understand what he was doing. There was wisdom there. And in the short time that he spent with this man Cephas, his heart was open. And nothing happened that disqualifies what Paul said I got the gospel from Jesus through no intermediator. We will find Paul going on. And all along the way, he's moving in his walk. He's coming together with other brothers in the Lord. He's connecting with them. He's not out there on his own. I have said it many times in the 40 plus years of ministry that God does not call the Lone Ranger. Then I'm quick to point out that even the Lone Ranger had Tonto. He was never completely alone. We were never called out to be on our own. And so for us, what does this principle tell me? That Paul was willing to make connection with Peter, not to get confirmed by Peter as such, but to become acquainted. How does that apply to us? Simply, faithful followers of Christ do not isolate themselves. If you're going to be faithful to the Lord, you cannot do your yourself. And I know there are a lot of reasons people pull away from church. Sometimes they've been hurt. Sometimes someone said or did something unkind and they feel broken and they pull away. I understand that. I know there are cases where people have physical things that keep them from coming to church per se. But we open ourselves to weakness, to vulnerability, to almost certainly failing if we cut ourselves off of, from other Christians. We need each other. And if we're going to be faithful to Christ, we need to be faithful to this thing called the body. That's why the writer of Hebrews in the very first century, before the church was very old in chapter 10, writer of Hebrews says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the custom already of some. We need to be brought together. When uh, Christian monks first showed up on the scene, they were known as the Desert Fathers because they thought the world was so corrupt, we got to get away from the world. And they went out, and they got all by themselves. It was just me and Jesus. But somewhere along the line, a, a reckoning came. And they understood, we cannot, we cannot have an impact on this world if we're hiding it. And they left the desert behind. Folks, you and I cannot, I'm just going to put it as bluntly as I can. We cannot successfully become all we are meant to be on our own. We need each other. We need each other for encouragement, for strength for counsel, for growth. Because I can guarantee you, everybody in this room has either been at the place or will be at some point in your life when your strength is gone. When you are broken by what has happened in the world and in your life. And there will be times it feels like you're about to lose everything. And that's when a brother or sister can walk alongside you. Let me help you carry the load for a while. Let me pray with you. Let me love you. Let me show you what you can be. The British poet John Donne wrote a short little verse. And he's talking about what it means to be part of humanity. But what he says in the opening line is doubly true for the people of God. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. You can't be faithful on your own. You're part of something greater. The body of Christ. Folks, just for a moment, realize when we call Father the significance of that. Father. The great I am, the God whose train fills the temple, whose ways are not our ways, whose thoughts are not our thoughts, is our Father, which means you're my brothers and sisters. And anywhere I go in this world, as a follower of Christ, if I can find a group of believers, I find family and find hope. So the reality is we need to walk in fellowship with one another. I remind you, the writer of Proverbs basically, or excuse me, Ecclesiastes says two are better than one. And he makes a very beautiful point. When one stumbles, you have your brother, your sister there to help pick you up. When one of us lacks wisdom, Someone in the family can remind us of the truth of God's word. So let's be certain. If you want to be faithful in your call to God, we need to be an active part of the family of God. And it doesn't have to be a church of 5,000. It doesn't even have to be a church in the 40s or 50s. Find a body and let God move to make you into what you ought to be. So, We get it. We understand the importance. We understand the need to connect. And that will indicate I'm a faithful follower. I'm on the right track because I know I can't do it alone. Our second principle, the faithful understand the importance of continuing service. The importance of continuing service. When we look at this story, there's something that, that very quickly comes to the forefront. Very quickly is made clear. Paul continued his call rather than settle settled down in Jerusalem. He came to become equated with Peter, with Cephas, for two weeks. Now, there may have been in Paul a, a kind of thought, well, maybe I could just stay here a while. But he couldn't, and he knew that. Why Why couldn't Paul stay in Jerusalem his entire ministry? Well, do you remember what his call from Christ was? Christ told oh, Paul, you're to be the apostle to whom? Gentiles. That's not going to happen in Jerusalem. That wasn't where God wanted Paul. So he's not seeking to have a role. He's not trying to become number 13 of the 12. He's not trying to become official leader at the church in Jerusalem. He knows his work wouldn't be there. So after his time in Jerusalem, at two weeks, we're told, I went up to Syria and to Cilicia. Now, Syria will become important to Paul because that's where Antioch is. And Paul met a very great guy that helped him a lot. And they met up in Antioch again and began a journey together. The guy's name was Barnabas. And they started out the first mission team. Uh, it was at Antioch that, that the church recognized the call Paul had already been given. And God used the church at Antioch to say it's time to launch out on the work. Cilicia is where Paul grew up in the city of Tarsus. And at the time of this writing, Cilicia and Syria were basically one kind of region in Rome. He went, and he began preaching, and he began teaching. How do we know that? Because he is connected with the church at Antioch, and they see, and they hear, and they watch him. He had a job to do, given to him by the risen Christ, and he was willing to go wherever the Lord wanted him to go. I've had friends in the past, he said, God is calling me to preach. And they made it very clear to God that they would accept that call if they got to serve within a 50-mile radius of home. I'm not sure how obedient that is. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure how really sold out you are. Uh, but that wasn't Paul. He was willing to go. And in the context of the passage, we know what he was doing. When he left Jerusalem, the churches of Judea are those churches outside of Jerusalem, stretched all the way from Judah, uh, Jerusalem up to Galilee. And they were hearing, they knew what Paul was doing. In the text, preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Paul said, I will follow your will. I will do your call. I will not try to make one up for myself. Let me follow you, Lord. Again, here we are. How does this apply? I need you again to listen both ears and your hearts. Faithful followers of Christ seek to accomplish their purpose in the kingdom. If I'm faithful, I'm asking God, why am I here? Why have you saved me? What is my purpose? Because I will tell you, without any fear of contradiction from the Word of God, everyone gathered here today, everyone gathered in churches anywhere around the world that are worshiping Christ, each one of us has a purpose in the kingdom of God. I remember a guy, it was a little bit crude, but he was happy to accept his role in the body of Christ, which he defined as the armpit in the body of Christ. He was basically saying, I'm not, I, don't, I don't want a lot of attention. I'm, I don't need to be the beautiful part. I don't need the part where everybody oohs and ahs, I just want to serve Jesus. Now, why are you here? The task may include service within the local church. Maybe God wants you to teach a Sunday school class among children or adults. Maybe God wants you to take it upon yourself, a ministry to the homebound in this church, reaching out to them. Maybe God has called you, and I know this to be true of several in this church, He's given you a gift of empathy. And you have the ability to reach out in acts of kindness and love to people who are hurting. And you're here. To be that strength that people need. Your task may be focused on ministry outside of the local church. Maybe God has been speaking to your life through the lives of some of these folks who are grading papers for the jail ministry, and God is calling you to maybe go teach at the jail. Maybe He's put a burden on your heart for the community in which you live so much. You say, God, I want you to open up doors where I can tell my neighbors about Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been given a very specific calling to go and volunteer at the Women's Resource Center to speak to an unwed mother whose family may have abandoned her, whose friends may have deserted her in a time of need. And I do know that some of you have a task that God has called you to, serving meals in one of the the soup kitchens across the coast where people need not just food, but they need a smiling face and a heart of love uh, that does not look down on them because of the situation they're in. The point is clear within the Word of God. None of us are called to be spectators. Some of you may, I don't know how many of you watched the Super Bowl game last week. But I've watched games with some of you. And some of you are very clear that you should be the coach. Because you knew what to do on that play. And you're telling the TV and anybody who's anywhere within earshot. But the reality is, it's highly unlikely anyone here is going to become an NFL coach. I could be wrong. And if I am, I will apologize later in your life. Uh, But I know what it means to sit on the couch and yell yell and bark commands. It's easy to say what should be done when you're a spectator. Christ has called us not to watch. Christ has called us to do. We are confirmed, we are proven faithful when we choose to act. When we choose to do what God wants us to do. A gentleman by the name of Miles McPherson wrote a book, uh, entitled God in the Mirror. And I, I, I love this encounter. He said, I walked out of my office one morning and a guy I'd never met was just getting off the elevator. He stood about six foot four, at least 250 pounds. He wore cut off jeans and a sweatshirt. His body was all tatted up. So you got that picture in your mind? Kind of a little, you know, maybe a little bit intimidating. But he said, we walked down the hall together, and he told me he was going to his first ministry meeting, and he was really nervous. This mountain of a man was nervous. And he said, why are you nervous? Pastor Miles, you always encourage us to do something, so I figured I got to do something. I want to serve the Lord. Miles said, since our church has over 100 outreach ministers, I asked him, what's the ministry you're, you're joining? Now, just you, this huge hulk of a man, the men's team ministry, you know, what, I'm ready. And this is what he said, the knitting ministry. And then he said, well, actually, I don't knit, I crochet. Now, here's a guy who looks like he could be an NFL tackle. He's nervous about joining a ministry that makes blankets and hats for hospitalized children. Curious, I asked him where he learned how to crochet. It gets even better. I was in the Hell's Angels for 12 years. I learned to crochet in prison. I know it's one thing I can do for the Lord. About that time, the lady who heads the ministry, walks up and says hi to him, to Miles and then asks the former Hells Angel, are you Jim? And he said, she gave him a big bear hug. Now, I'm pretty sure she probably came to right about here on Jim. Gave him a big grin, a hug, took him by the hand, and they walked down the hall together. Now, there are folks in this congregation who can crochet and knit. But here is a man, can you imagine the ripple effect this huge, intimidating man could have because he had a heart to help little kids in what some would consider the most unmanly of arts. And he was not at all phased by that. Folks, you have a call. You have a call. And each one of us here, we need to be committed to doing the ministry we've been given. And this means, of course, we've got to discover what that ministry is. If you haven't asked, God, what do you want me to do? And start looking and start praying and start seeking counsel. Your ministry may involve training to help become effective in that ministry. If you, if you said, I, you know what, I would like to go and teach a Bible class to, at a, a jail a prison. I can guarantee you there'll be training there. So connect to the people who can give you the training to help you find. But we must, if we want to be faithful, if we want God to be glorified in our lives, honored in our church, we must, as a people, get off the comfortable pew. We have got to stand up and say, I don't want to watch anymore. I want to do what God has called me to do. And when that begins to happen, that confirmation comes. When we discover this is my call, sometimes for some of us it's scary. Sometimes for some of us it answers the question we've wondered all our lives. Why am I here? And we need to be committed. So we need to be connected to each other. And that connection is one of the ways we can learn what God wants us to do. God begins speaking through our brothers and sisters in Christ. We can find our guests and then we need to be committed to the ministry if we're going to be faithful. And finally, the faithful as you are committed to the ministry, the faithful are confirmed by their actions and their beliefs. The faithful are confirmed by their actions and beliefs. Look what happens. Paul meets Cephas, stays with him six days, goes on his way to where God would have him to go, all the while preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And the result? The churches of Judea rejoiced in what God had done in the life of Paul. A witness to Christ. All of us are called to be that, aren't we? Great Commission, Acts eight. over and over again, we see we are called To share. Well, it becomes a lot easier to share when people see that Christ has actually done something in their lives. And that's true with Paul. He told the Galatians, I wasn't known personally by the churches of Judea. This is one of the indications. He's not talking about Jerusalem. Paul probably would have been well known in Jerusalem because of his persecution. But he had never what he's saying, I was unknown to them. I never met them face to face. I didn't visit in their church. I didn't get to hold a revival. I never met them. Never not got to know them. I was unknown. But they'd heard his story. And they heard what he was doing. And it was such a powerful change. And I I know, I know that at first, we're told churches were afraid of him. People in Damascus, they didn't trust Paul at first. And I can't blame them. And there is need to be discerning. But he lived it enough that people began to understand This isn't a trick. He's not trying to lure us into ease so he can come and wrap us up and take us to jail. His life was changed so powerfully that Paul writes what those churches were saying about him. Uh, I've been referred to by many different names of the people who've identified me in one particular place we served, uh, I'm, Jessica, I think, is too young to remember this. Uh, but at the local hospital when I would go in to, to minister, at that hospital I was known as the pastor with the funny hats. Because in that place, about the only hat that was worn was either a cowboy hat or a, a bill cap. And I would come walking in in fedoras and flat caps and, I was that strange guy. I've been known as the preacher with the facial hair. I've been known by a lot of different things. But listen to what Paul was known as. He is the one who used to persecute us, who is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. The churches of Judea say we may not know him personally, but we know what God. God has done in him. We know how God has changed him. And more than that, Paul says they glorify God because of me. His life and his message became the best argument for the truth of the gospel because the change in his life was so real that others saw it and praised God from him. These false teachers that he's battling are identified as Judaizers. They were Jewish Christians who were saying, Paul is not telling you enough. It's not just about having faith in Jesus. Before you can have faith in Jesus, you need to be circumcised. You need to follow the law of Judaism. Then you can get saved. And Paul says the churches of Judea, Jewish congregations, were all right with me. They know that what I'm doing is from God. And that's our testimony. That's what happens with us. Faithful followers develop lifestyles that are built on the truth they have received. When we talk about Jesus, people are more inclined to listen to us when they see that our faith matches what we are. It's cliche now, but we know the term practice what you preach, don't we? If you're talking about the love of Jesus and people see you spouting hate, they don't want to listen to you. If they want to talk to you, when they want to hear you talk about how you can be saved by grace through faith, but they look at your life and you are so full of legalism, your life is anything but grace. But when what we say we believe, and the way we live our lives come together, suddenly there's a difference. I told you before, I'm a little uncomfortable when people use religious language too much. I've known folks who punctuate every sentence with praise God. Nobody does that in the Bible. I'm uncomfortable when people use words trying to say we're, we're preaching to the lost using words that the lost will have no clue what they mean. People are not interested in empty platitudes. They want to see we care. They want to see we love them. They want to see we are listening to them. And one of the reasons they want to see we love them, they know enough about the Christian faith that they've heard we're supposed to love our neighbors. And they're looking. How can they see that Jesus has made a change in us? Because we love talking about Jesus. And we love them. And we are seeking to help them. Our lives become a powerful witness out of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is warning his disciples, don't be like the Pharisees who are very ritualistic and do everything to be seen and puffed up about. Matthew five sixteen, he says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your father in heaven. Those people may be strange over Bay Wista, but I know they love me. They've shown me. My next door neighbor may talk about Jesus, but as I look at her and I see her live her life, I'm inclined to listen to what she has to say. Again, I forgive the cliche, but folks, we need to walk the walk and talk the talk. It's not enough to have a memorized speech that uses all the right religious terms in order to witness. It's not enough to know the correct religious rituals to do. They're nothing more than ritual. We need to be living the life Christ gave us, the abundant life He promised. That can only be done as we yield our lives into His hands consistently. We must speak the truth to a world that stands at odds with God we serve. When that meshes together, then God is saying, well done, good and faithful servant. So we need to be connected, and we need to be doing the ministry, and we need to be seeking Christ to move in our lives and change us. John Newton was an 18th century pastor and a man who truly understood the power of the gospel and grace of God. He is most famous to most people as being the author of that incredible hymn, Amazing Grace. Lyrics, I like what one person said about Amazing Grace. The lyrics seem to tell each of our stories better than we ourselves could. But before Newton was a Christian hymn writer, he was a rascal. He was a slave trader. He was a rebel. Yet the mercy of God entered into his life and changed him. Jesus got in Newton's way and ultimately saved Newton from himself. Newton wrote to a friend talking about his conversion. He said, I, though long a ringleader in blasphemy and wickedness, was spared, And though banished into the wilds of Africa, where I was the sport, yea, the pity of slaves, it was a slave trader that actually fell into the hands of slaves. I was by a series of providences little less than miraculously recovered from that house of bondage, and at length appointed to preach the faith that I had long labored to destroy. He wrote his own epitaph shortly before he died. And this is how he described himself, and he said, I want it inscribed on a plain marble, no other monument or inscription. He didn't want anything to detract from his testimony of Christ. This is the epitaph. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, reserved, restored, pardoned and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. You look at people like John Newton. You look at people like Charles Coulson of Watergate fame. Who began a ministry to prisoners that continues to this day. You look at the changes Christ made and we see what it means to be faithful. Confirmation is found in understanding we are part of the body of Christ and we need to be connected. Confirmation is found in our doing the work of God, finding our purpose and living it out. Confirmation is found by our testimony, backed up by the life we live. Paul sought to help the Galatians see that his gospel and he were true. And we need to show the world that Jesus can change us. So today, as you bow your heads, close your eyes. Will you seek to become one who is confirmed in their faith, not by empty words, but by lives that are lived together, by sharing the faith, by living the life? Today, will you yield yourself into the hands of the true and life-changing God? right where you are, no one looking about. If you want to say, Danny, I want to be that faithful person. I want to be that person who loves Jesus. And it is clear that I do. I want to be faithful. Would you slip up your hand and let me pray with